Well, hello. It is nice to be preaching to real people as opposed to really empty seats. Welcome to all of you who are uh, here tonight. And then a special welcome to all of you who are watching online. Uh, We know, and Larry already said, that this service might feel a little bit different than the previous weeks. Uh, But I think the plus side of that, and um, I hope that all of us would agree, is it's neat that all of us, those online at home and those here at the church, still experience the exact same worship service. So thanks for joining us. We're aware that you're there and we're glad you are. And then for those who are here tonight, welcome as well. I uh, probably don't have to recap the last three months. They have been uh, something else. I was speaking to someone who's twice, more than twice my age two nights ago. And he's a guy from Waterstone, and he said, Elliot, I have never seen anything like this in all my life. And uh, I believe him at his word. I don't really have to recap what the last three months have held uh, because you haven't been able to escape it. Maybe you've tried to escape it, but you really can't. You can say, okay, well, I'm going to go out to my favorite restaurant, get some comfort food. And you pull up and you realize there's no dining service or the hours of operation have uh, changed. Or maybe it's temporarily closed because of COVID. So you say, okay, well, you know what? I'll drive and I'll go to the mall. Yeah, that's it. I'll get a nice little pick-me-up. So you go to Southwest Plaza or Park Meadows. And if we're being honest, Park Meadows. And you walk in the door and you realize there's only six shops open And one of them is the tea shop on the second floor. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm not going in there. So you say, well, then you know what? I'm going to go home. I need just some concrete, decisive information about the world because everything seems so up in the air. I'm going to read the news. And you laugh to yourself realizing that will not comfort you or make you feel more secure. So exhaling, you decide, all right, last resort. I'm going to walk outside and go for a walk and distract myself a little bit. So you walk outside and you're in your driveway, you close your eyes, finally there's a little bit of respite. You breathe in and then you exhale and open your eyes. And a sweet little nine-year-old girl bicycles by your driveway in a full hazmat suit. And you realize you cannot escape what is happening. So where have we returned to or where have we gone in the midst of the last three months? I think that's an important question that we return to here as we're coming back to the church. In a way, come back to basics of our faith. Well, many of the answers to where we've gone, where we've turned are documented clearly for us. I was doing some research last week and this week, and it looks like Uber Eats and uh, Grubhub uh, food delivery services are up 500% since the beginning of the year. Alcohol and weed consumption and adult content is skyrocketed. Streaming services like Disney Plus and Amazon Prime and Hulu, whatever else you have, they're all way, way up. In short, we have turned to our vices. Now, is this an American thing, right? Don't you love people that just like to assume all the problems are America's? Well, it looks like it's a human problem. Whether it's the Northern Hemisphere or the Southern, the East or the West, wherever you look at it in the world, it changes a little and varies by contextualization, but it's surprising to see the amount of overlap of chosen, preferred vices that we've all turned to since this COVID pandemic began. 
And so then we have to ask, well, is it a modern problem to turn to our vices, to look for distraction or comfort, for security in times of fear and worry, or validation? And it's not. The Old Testament, God's people like you and I in the Old Testament, went to our vices looking for distraction, comfort, security, and validation. In the New Testament, we see that as well. Except in the Bible, Scripture doesn't refer to it often as vices. That's a more modern context language that we use. When people would turn to something other than God for distraction or comfort, for security, Scripture calls that idols and idolatry. But to us, the word idol is a little benign. It doesn't have an edge. But when it comes to vices, we know people whose lives, marriages, careers, whatever, have crashed because of their vices. And so today, I want to make sure that we are thinking about vices as we hear from Paul in the book of Ephesians, as he critiques the Christians there in Ephesus about their idolatry. Where have you turned? Maybe I didn't list your preferred vice or idol in the last three months. But as followers of Christ, where did we turn? For distraction, for comfort, for security, or for validation? Ephesus is kind of like Reno. So many of us have heard of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Uh, Corinth was like Vegas. It's a big, booming place. And Reno is kind of like the junior version of that, okay? So Ephesus is Reno, and that is where Paul is writing to Christians who live in that city, where the characteristics and norms are drastically different than the way of Christ in Ephesians. So if you would follow along silently, I'll read out loud, starting in Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 5. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. The word of the Lord. Paul is really clear with us that Christ cares a lot about your love. He takes seriously the things that you love. Now, let me clarify what I mean by that. We should not have, as the first commandment, right, back in Exodus says, any gods before the one true God. Yes. But God doesn't call, and this is good news, by the way, you and I to a dull lifestyle. Like, secretly, we have to love dark chocolate, but we tell everyone it's just okay. Or we care less about our family, or love our career and house less. He's not asking that you have dull loves, but that he be the brightest of them all. And so as we return to church and in essence return to some of the basics of our faith, that's the question that we have for all of us, including myself. Is Christ the brightest of all of our loves? Why is this so hard though? Why is it so hard to make Christ the number one in our life? Why do we routinely return to idols or vices or whatever language you want to use for it? 
I think it's because the truth is our vices serve a function in our life. They're useful. We like them. I like mine, but they're also deceitful. Let me explain what I mean by our idols serve a function. Pope Francis, the current pope of the Catholic Church, he calls the golden calf narrative. Back in Exodus, he says it is the idol par excellence. It's fun to say. And he says that because it summarizes the way that our vices work. Even the most benign vice or something that's truly good, and many of our vices are, by the way, truly good God-given things. But he says the way that they function is much like the golden calf narrative. See, Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai. He's spending time with God up there. The people are down below. And according to their needs to distract from screaming babies that are, you know, wanting whatever it is, or kids that are arguing, to comfort from questions about why do we leave Egypt and why are we in a desert, to secure about where we're going or validate that God's still there, his people are still at the bottom of the mountain asking these questions. And as this is what it says in Exodus, Moses delays, in other words, God's people who have seen him work in their life, don't see him working in the manner or in the timing that they expected. Does this sound familiar? They decide to take their needs into their own hands and quite literally craft the golden calf. You see, that is how idols function in our life. They give us the veneer of control, that we can craft something. We can choose when we'll be comforted or distracted, feel more secure or feel validated. But all the while, our vices are truly controlling us. Specifically, the way it looks in many of our lives is we're feeling discouraged or maybe numb, sad or worried, insecure or inadequate in some role, relationally or job related. And so we go out and we purchase something. It can be small and trivial just to get that buyer's high. We look for comfort food. We open a private browser on our computer. We dive into work and career. And rather than deal with the conflicts in our relationship, or wrestle down the insecurities that drive us to our vices, we are in control of reaching out for our idols. But idols don't just serve a function in our life. They're also tricky little things. By nature, they're deceitful. It's the reason why Paul says to that church in Ephesus, the Reno of their day and age, he says this in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. So to give some context, people are saying to the church in Ephesus, okay, all right, we get the point. You take this stuff really seriously, the apostles' teaching, I get it, you take it to heart, I'm not supposed to do this stuff. All right, all right, calm down. They're starting to say, you don't want to be legalistic with all this, like, you know, God said don't and do thing, right? I mean, you want to be normal. You want to be able to reach people who aren't following the way of Christ, don't you? And Paul says, pause, full pause. Of course, have a brain and be a normal person. Yes, that's in line with following Christ. 
But don't mistake nominalism with the mature understanding of God's grace. Let me say that again. Paul says, do not mistake nominalism, an apathy in our faith that we go through the motions, with having a mature understanding of when to take God seriously and when not to. He says that is misguided. Idols are to nominal hearts like fertilizer is to a seed. They nurture the complacent. They say to the spiritually asleep, shh, shh, go back to sleep. All is well. You are comfortable and safe. Life's most important values. Go back to sleep. All the while we are on life's escalator, going downwards, slipping into a life that Christ never meant for us, that too often we blame our faith for being lackluster and lacking the transformational power that the Gospels tell us. The second way that idols deceive us is by selling us fool's freedom. Fool's freedom, by that I mean just like fool's gold, or apparently there's fool's bronze and copper as well. But we'll stick with fool's gold. It shines and it looks like gold. But it is worthless. So too, our idols sell us a worthless and false sense of freedom. Where we end up getting trapped in insatiable cycles. We find a vice that works for us for a need that we have But unlike Christ, once we have encountered that idol, gotten what we're looking for, found distraction, comfort, or security or validation, we end up at the very back of the line to restart the process all over again. Do you relate to that in any way? I know I do. What I find so interesting about the fool's freedom that idols give is how quickly it deceives us and how we'll focus on other things. In other words, the Surgeon General can say, well, you're more free by everyone wearing a face mask. And then some political pundit will say, no, it's unconstitutional to require everyone to wear a face mask. And we will stand around and argue till we're blue in the face about who's right and waste a decade of our life enslaved to our spending, our stomach, our image, or our groin. Are you glad that you came to church today? So how do we achieve freedom from the things we turn to for our felt needs, legitimate needs that God validates? How do we receive freedom and walk in the life Christ has, which is life abundant, by the way? Well, Paul says this, starting in verse 8, For you were once darkness, But now you are light in the Lord. That's your identity. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. But rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. I believe there are three categories to which we 
expose our vices, our idols. Whether that's coming out of three months of quarantine and there are places in your life that you know are not breeding life, they're sucking life, even if they provide a felt need. Or this is a lifelong, loved, long-held pattern. The instruction that Paul gives to us is to drag our vices, our idols, into the light. First, I think we drag our idols into the light of self. There comes a point where we have to be honest with ourselves and self-aware enough to say, there are places in my life where, as the old cliche goes, good things have become God things. In other words, things that Scripture validates, food and family, sex and alcohol, these are things that God affirms the right use of in Scripture. But those things in my life have not become possessions of mine, but possessing me and my life. So we become self-aware. The second light that we drag our idols and our vices in front of is the light of others. Over and over, the apostles encourage us as believers to bring our vices and our sins in front of other believers. Someone with flesh and blood who has two eyes and can look us in the eyes. And when we do, we choose the type of person that both roots for us. In other words, cares when we say, I've gone off the path. But firmly is convinced and relays to us the goodness of God. So first, we become self-honest and aware. And second, we bring our idols and vices into the light of others. But the last and the most important is we bring our vices, our idols, the things that we love, but we recognize take life out of our lives before Christ. Now, I want to say that's not the obvious throwaway answer. Just, just stick with me here. What Paul says here is that something supernatural happens when you bring your idols, your vices, the things that you feel you need, the thing that you feel like if everything just went kaput, I would still have this as a source of comfort. Paul says, I get how entrapping that can be, how enslaving that can be, even if you choose to be enslaved to it at some point. But if you bring that before Christ, his light illuminates that and it transforms and you are transformed. Specifically, what I mean is this, that for those of us who have good things in our life, great things, but they have become the target. They, as Tim Keller says, use up our imagination that we think about frequently, that many of those good things that have become life-sucking, numbing God things, there it is, that God will take those and not take them from us, but actually return them in their rightful place to be enjoyed properly. And then Paul says, and actually, if we could put that up there, verse 13. Paul says that everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Think about that. Every part of your life, the vices that you and I have, and we all have them, that are embarrassing 
and look a whole lot better in the dark, that even bringing that before Christ can be illuminated and be a light to the world. That the darkest parts of our life can bring God glory and light to other people's dark and at times hopeless lives. This is supernatural power of Jesus. You know, I grew up listening to, wow, that's what I call worship CDs. Don't judge me for it, okay? It was bread and butter in my mom's 1998 Volvo station wagon. I loved that thing. And I remember driving around, and there's one song in particular that always sticks in my head. And the lyric is, if you know it, say it. It's, oh Lord, we cast down our idols, right? And I think about that now as an adult. And man, would it be wonderful if that's actually how it worked, right? You just say, okay, great sermon, Elliot. Really encouraged. That's great. I'm going to cast down my idols. See you next week. But that's not how it works. Our idols function far more like yo-yos than they do just something we can throw to the ground easily. Because I can say to God and sincerely say, God, I give this to you. But like a yo-yo, by the time I throw it to the ground and I fully take it in my breath, it's back in my hand. This is the power of Christ. It's why it's important to share with self and others our honest struggles, but it's insufficient if we don't bring it before Christ. You know what this is called? It's repentance. It's, it's coming before God and saying, Lord, I turn my back on this, and sometimes I find myself authentically throwing it, and I walk three feet, and it's in my pocket again. This is hard to get rid of. This is an ego thing. It's an insecurity thing. It's a security issue. I don't even know if I believe I don't need it. And so we bring it before God, believing that he knows our hearts and is able to do what we're not able to do. That's repentance. And here's why repentance is a beautiful thing for us as Christians. Because repentance always precedes renewal. Look, this was true in 2 Chronicles right? The verse that every grandmother has um, uh, crocheted in the bathroom right there so beautifully is that if my people who are called by my name would turn from their wicked ways, I will forgive their sins and heal their land. Repentance, turn from their ways, renewal, heal their land. It's why the prophets like Joel, and we'll be looking at the prophets going forward for uh, the next several weeks. It's why the prophets say this over and over. Repent and experience the new life, the renewal of Christ. In Acts, the same thing, repent and be renewed. And here in Ephesians, Paul has just identified that we struggle with idolatry. He has told us what to do to drag it into the light to repent. And then listen to the very next verse, verse 14. He quotes a hymn that would have been well known to his audience. And he says this, Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Can we read that together once as a church? Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Is there anyone who feels as though renewal would be a nice thing right about now? That 
the life that's described in the New Testament of the apostles, some of the lives that we might hear about of Christians around the world, that the transformational power that Jesus portrays, it'd be really nice to have some of that in our own life. Look, we, we are coming back to church, but let's make sure we don't just come back and get in old grooves if they're not fruitful, life-producing, transformational grooves. God doesn't need Christians in the U.S. that just show up in buildings, and I'm speaking about myself, out of duty. He wants people who taste and see that the Lord is good, as the psalm says, and show up to be refreshed with the community of believers or at home for his glory. That's the reason why we've asked the church to join with us on Tuesdays at lunch. And if you can't fast food, fast something else. And if Tuesdays lunch don't work, that's all right. Find another time. But it's to be renewed. Because we believe that there is a transformational power of Jesus Christ. But it has to start with us. There was an old preacher decades and decades and decades ago who once said, if you want renewal, draw a circle on the ground and stand in it and then pray God would begin in that circle. That's repentance. It's beginning here and trusting there to come down and fill us. The beauty of renewal in our life is that it gives us the freedom to walk away from our idols because we don't need them anymore. It gives us the freedom to say, I looked to comfort there, but now I believe that the Holy Spirit is the great comforter, as Scripture says. It says, if I'm in discomfort and pain or worry, I'm going to trust God that he's developing long-suffering and patience and endurance in me Rather than try to distract myself, we begin to shift our weight and trust that Jesus will hold us up on the other end. And renewal comes when we see that he does. The beauty of how this passage ends is actually, or begins, uh, we actually skipped over. Verses 1 and 2, and I want to look at this before we wrap here. Paul says, Follow God's example. Pause. That's a lot to ask us, but let's keep reading. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You know what's so great about Paul's letter to the Ephesians? Is that before he begins a passage confronting our vices and our idols, he tells us to follow God's example, knowing that we will struggle to do that. And then he proclaims that you, if you believe Jesus is God and King, that you are a dearly loved child. He doesn't say, okay, follow God's example, therefore, you are a dearly loved child, providing that all the stuff I'm about to ask you, you can adhere to. Or if... Or so long as. He says you are. And that's the confidence that we approach Christ with our vices before him. But the second point I want to pull 
is that as we look at the things we've turned to over the last three months or maybe a much longer season, places to find validation, security, comfort, or distraction, that we are reminded to look into the loving eyes of Christ, who in the most selfless way gave himself up for us as an offering to God. And that is our model, that's our example. So today, I would encourage you to allow yourself to be honest, recognize that you'll leave and you'll probably have multiple yo-yos attached to you. Moments and convictions where you realize, God, I want to give this to you, but I don't seem to be able. And there's something supernatural when we at least voice that to God and bring it in front of his life, his light, that he transforms that. Sometimes immediately and miraculously, but in my life, usually it's a process and it builds patience in me, but it develops trust in him. So today we're going to wrap by coming to the Lord's table, which is going to look very different if you're here in person than it has weeks before. But I would ask that you take the Lord's Supper not just as a proclamation of Christ's death and resurrection and second coming, which it is, but that today you individually would make this a statement between you and God. Not that you can promise you'll never return to these vices, but that we ask, would you take them from us? I want your renewal. That in taking the bread and the cup, that we would make the ultimate act of infidelity to our vices and commitment to our loving Lord. That we would repent and be renewed in the light of Christ. With that, I'll give you a brief moment. And if you're at home watching, I'd encourage you to go gather the elements if you haven't already. But in this moment, I would encourage you to pause, to reflect, and to repent. Repent knowing that Christ's renewal precedes or follows our repentance. And then we'll take the elements together. If this is your first time taking communion with these uh, cups, um, just so you know, we'll first pull back the uh, clear film at the top for the wafer, and then following that, we'll take the cup together, pulling back the entire lid. So, thank you. This is what Scripture tells us. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, 
after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Thanks be to God.